it's like a little, little mouse of a database. Right. <laughs> and the still very powerful. The mm-hmm. Mongo mouse. Strong, yeah. 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 Strong very... muscular, but yeah. also very sensitive mouse that lives in your phone. Perfect. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast. This week, we're brought to you by MParticle. What could you do with better data? PMs, developers, and data analysts at customer-obsessed companies like Spotify and Airbnb use MParticle to unify and validate their customer data, streamline their growth stack, guide product, and make business decisions. Visit mparticle.com stack to learn what MParticle can do for you. Welcome, everybody, to the Stack Overflow podcast. We have a guest with us today, Elliot Horowitz, the co-founder and CTO of MongoDB. Welcome, Elliot. Thanks for having me. Yeah, our pleasure. So tell us a little bit about how this company was founded, since you are the co-founder. Wait, let me swoop in. What is MongoDB? Yeah. So that's an easy and hard question to answer. So MongoDB is it's a database, and it's a, a document database with a lot of great distributed features. And... What it is and how it created really are almost one and the same. MongoDB started because we were fundamentally very frustrated with databases and we wanted a database that solved our needs and that actually worked for us. And for us, that came down to a database that actually worked in the data models and with the languages in a way that made sense. So documents and queries and indexes that made sense for modern development languages and that worked with distributed systems. So you could use it in the cloud. You can go from one machine to thousands of machines and not wake up at three in the morning when one machine breaks. And so how did this company start? Well, it started because fundamentally, Dwight and I were very selfish and wanted a database that we wanted. And if no one else was going to build the database that we wanted to use, we were just going to go out and build it ourselves. So were you working together at a different company and using a database that you didn't like or...? So we worked together at two companies prior. So I originally worked for DoubleClick for Dwight, and we used a lot of databases there, you know, all the usual suspects, Oracle, et cetera, et cetera. Then we started another company together called ShopWiki. When we were sort of winding down our engagement with ShopWiki, we had another idea for an application we wanted to build. We very quickly realized that the database was yet again going to be a problem, as it had been in every other project we'd ever worked on together. And as we started designing the database for this application, we realized we were way more interested in the database than the application itself and said, let's just build a database. You know, I remember when y'all were getting started, I was really involved in the New York City development scene. MongoDB and Twilio, I think, have the best developer evangelism programs, I think, out there. What made you be so early in developer evangelism? Because there wasn't a lot of people doing it. Microsoft had done it for a long time. But they weren't going to hackathons and doing the really fun stuff that y'all were. So how did you get started doing that? So when we started, we didn't have a a marketing department. We didn't have a developer relations department. We didn't really have anything. So we we built this thing. We were super excited about it. We told a couple of our friends. They were super excited about it. And basically, we were like, I guess we should tell some other people. How do we do that? So we went to some meetups. We hired, we had two very young developers who worked for us. And they were like, hey, we should go to some hackathons. Turns out I really enjoy just going to hackathons and hanging out with people. There's some at NYU's where I would just love showing up at 10 p.m. and just hanging out till 4 a.m. just talking to people what they were building and how they were using Mongo. And we just kept doing it because frankly it was fun and we enjoyed it and people liked Mongo and we just kept doing it. That's great. I won $500 gift card to JetBlue because of Mongo because we made an app that removed mustaches from people. (laughs) 
That sounds like a very good hack. Actually. <laughs> Sarah was way ahead of the curve before Instagram and Snapchat had those face filters. Can Sarah you was removing? And that's mustaches. like a noble cause. Yeah. <laughs> Can you explain why that used MongoDB? Actually, we had to store the images. We stored the images. It was like an overnight hack, and so we just stored the URL of the images in Mongo. This was before local storage was big. And what about Mongo? What's the meaning there? DB database. Mongo means what? Mongo comes from humongous. So one of the core value propositions of Mongo is that it can scale as big as you need it to. Humongous is obviously a word that means big. And Gotcha. So humongousdb.com was already taken. Mouthful. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a, a mouthful. mouthful. I might start using that. I'd be like, this, You're going to make humongous DB? lunch is just Mongo. Oh, Maybe Mongo. We'll I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so talk us through a little bit of the uh, early stages of the company. Was it immediately something that you were able to bootstrap? You thought about venture funding. Obviously, you'd been at other companies. Um, what were the early roadblocks, you know, that you had to get through in order to scale it up as a company? So we bootstrapped very, very briefly for four or five months. And so that just means we didn't make money because it's just the two of us. So we just, just started building it. And about seven months in or so, so in May of uh, 2008, we met with Albert from Union Square Ventures, who had a very similar idea of what a database of the future could look like and had experienced both personally and in a lot of the companies that he'd invested in pain points around scaling, around data models, around like, okay, we're all, you know, we're using modern programming languages, we're using Python, we're using Ruby, we're using Java, and we're using databases from the 70s. Does Albert have a last name or is he? Albert just, Wenger. Okay, not, not like Prince. It was he, is, just... <laughs> he, he is kind of like Prince, but okay. no, but Albert Wenger. Sorry. And um, so he had, he had actually written this blog post and we were like, oh, that sounds like what we want to build. And so we talked to him and so we raised some money. And originally we weren't, we wanted to build a database. We also wanted to build sort of a, a platform around the database so, for example, one of the big challenges early on was we realized that we couldn't do everything we wanted. So we just focused just on the database. And then the spring of 2009, we released the first public version of Mongo. And very quickly, you know, in a matter of months, people found it and were like, wow, this thing is actually cool, which led to about three years of not sleeping and insanity. And, you know, in terms of, you know, we had a interesting, unique problem, which was that the excitement around Mongo was so immense and our team was very small. It was uh, one of my favorite stories was probably about six months after we launched, this relatively large internet brand called us and said, hey, we're looking at Mongo for some really important apps. We'd love for you to send you know, a salesperson and some pre-sales engineers out. And we were like, that sounds great. At the time, we were four people. Mm-hmm. It was me, Dwight, and two engineers right out of college. <laughs> four pre-sales engineers? So we had no one. And so me and one of the other junior engineers got on a plane and, and we just showed up and just started walking them through stuff. I think they had, if they had any idea that that was half the company at the time, they might not have made that uh, decision. I remember there were, at the t- you guys were the first really big ones. There was a few databases were changing at the time. And I remember there being two reactions. Maybe you can confirm, but half of it were people that were, were used to relational databases being like, oh my God, what is this? I don't even know. There's just going to be data laying around and no one's going to know where it's even there. And then there was other people like myself that were like, Jason, I'm so excited. <laughs> How did you convert those early folks? Because now, you know, everyone understands that non-relational databases are great and have lots of uses. But at the time, how did you convert those folks? So a couple things. One is I would say we're still fighting that same fight, Mm. right? I would still say that the default for most people is still relational and it's, it's changing, right? You know, every high school, every college teaching relational databases. And so we're still working. And the nice thing is 
when you talk to developers who are just getting started, when you talk to people who are taking college classes in web, you know, in building web applications, you talk to people in coding academies, MongoDB and documents make so much more sense than relational databases. So those are actually in some ways the easiest people to talk to because they're like, oh, I get it. I'm using Python. I'm using Ruby. I have this structure. I can save that structure. I can create indexes on it and query on it. This all makes sense. The people who are used to relational databases, some of them are like, oh my God, this solves all the problems I've ever had. Others are, wait a minute, what's going on here? This is the people you're talking about. This is all new and scary. So a lot of it was how we convinced them. It was showing them if they did it, what the benefits are, right? Look, your developers can move faster. This thing makes more sense in terms of your application design. Oh, look, maybe you can get rid of this caching layer that you have where you're just caching, frankly, a document composed of 20 tables that you've got to maintain, right? There are tons of products out there whose entire existence is, I've got this relational database that doesn't quite work for what I need to. I'm just going to cache it in this other thing to make it fast, right? We can make your architecture a lot simpler. So that was part of the story. The other part of the story was adding more and more features from relational databases that they were like, hey, we, we want some of this. So for example, we added support for JSON schema, right? Because the document model isn't about, you know, freedom to do whatever you want and complete Wild West. Yes, there are certain cases where you want total flexibility. Maybe for some use cases, you're like, I want a developer to put whatever they want in there. In other cases, you're like, I want a developer to put whatever they want in this section of the document, but this section should be very well structured. I want these five things, maybe there's an array, everything in this array should have these fields. And so JSON schema, for example, lets you actually have structure. Let's a DBA or someone put some rules around the database. Well, at the same time, still having the flexibility you need if you need it. That's great. So now how big are y'all? So Mongo is public now. So the yeah. company is 19-ish hundred people. Wow. Um, so it's grown quite a bit from those four people a decade ago. You have pre-sales engineers now. We have a couple hundred pre-sales <laughs> engineers um, who make my life a lot better every day. That's great. <laughs> and how global is that? From a field standpoint, we are, you know, there's probably a MongoDB employee in almost every major city around the world. The MongoDB engineering team is also quite global. You know, we've got still the bulk of our engineers, probably not a majority, but close to a majority in New York. But we've got big engineering offices in the West Coast, big in Sydney, big in Dublin, people in Barcelona, in Germany, and so just people everywhere. And so do you have like one product you offer? Do you have a suite of products? Is there something that you offer now that's completely different from, you know, sort of the foundational stuff that we were just talking about? So not completely different. We've certainly expanded. And we think about data and think about data problems developers have. Right, so our goal hasn't really changed from the beginning. It's me as a developer, working with data was always a pain. Our goal is to make working with data easy. So we have the core database, obviously that's where we spend a lot of our time. We also have MongoDB Atlas, which is sort of the hosted version, which is now sort of the, the main way a lot of people are consuming Mongo, because it's a cloud service. You can just come in there, you can just, you know, start for free, scale as big as you want, use it on any of the big public clouds, so whether it's Amazon, Google, or Microsoft, it's fine. You can migrate between them. You can pick and choose. So you get all these sort of great benefits of that kind of a service and very easy to use. And then we're also doing things around that to you know, help you with other kinds of data problems. For example, we have a charting solution on top of this where you can just, if you want to build a dashboard or charts, and then embed them in your application. Maybe you've got a blog and you want to embed a chart in your, in your blog post. Or you actually want to embed something into an application with user-specific data. So I want to build a chart of my activity. You can just go build the chart, build the dashboard in this tool, and then embed it into your web application. Other things to help build the web applications, we announced some, you know, a GraphQL support, for example, a few weeks ago, where if you're building a, a React application and a web application and you want to use GraphQL 
to get the data from Atlas directly into your application, you can do that without writing any backend code. So lots of things around the database, but all in the spirit of how do we make working with data easier for developers. What do you do all day as a CTO? Question I ask a lot. <laughs> you ask, so, well, you ask yourself. You. No, I ask myself. It's yeah, like I look like, back at my week. I'm like, what did I do this week? You're hacking, oh. Mongo. Like things are going. They're they're busy. There's four people in the company. Now there's 1,900 people, and you're the chief technology officer. That's that's got to be a little different. It's definitely different. I still spend more time writing software than you'd expect. Though it's been about five years since I wrote any production Mongo code. Yeah, they're not Pro- letting, they're not letting that happen. No, they were yeah. very happy when I said, fine, I'll stop. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no one wanted to do code reviews for me. It was just, <laughs> yeah, like, we're not shipping that. Yeah. That's, yeah. It's like so, editing the editor-in-chief. Yeah. So, so that stopped. So look, my job is predominantly four to five things. We'll see if I can remember which ones they are. So one, and probably the thing I spend the most time thinking about, is product, right? What should we be building? What do our users want? Where is the space going? What are the kinds of problems developers need? You know, is this product good for developers? Can they understand it? You know, just you know, sort of product management one-on-one. Now you got to um, do some listening to get there, right? Like, who are you talking to? Anyone who will talk to me. Okay. I talk, you know, I speak at a lot of conferences, a lot of Mongo events, and I just love going to Mongo events and just, you know, talking to people, seeing what's, what works, what doesn't work. We obviously have a lot of people talking to customers, so reading that feedback. I talk to, you know, another th- main thing I do with my time is talk to customers, talk to users, uh, whether it's in person or just, you know, I love talking to users. I love helping them understand where Mongo fits, understanding what's good about Mongo, what's bad about Mongo. So that's another thing I spend a lot of time doing. One of the things that has changed the last few years is spending more and more time thinking about how do we help people understand where Mongo fits into the broader ecosystem? You know, where does Mongo, you know, what is different between Mongo and big cloud vendors? How do we fit in? Where are we going? Explaining the Mongo story. I think there's a lot of different pieces to it, and it's there is a lot of noise in the world about sort of the developer space, obviously everyone wants developers to like their stuff, like their platform. And so I spent a lot of time sort of figuring out the right ways to do that. And a lot of that ties directly to another thing I spent time, you know, obviously company strategy. You know, where do we want to make big investments? What are the things that are going to matter to developers, not just today, but over, you know, three years, five years, 10 years, where's the space going? And last, and certainly not least, is I do have a large team and I do have to manage it at some point. So I got to actually, you know, I got to, you know, go talk to them and, deal with HR issues and all that kind of stuff. So I know Mongo is a public company, maybe you're limited in what you can say, but where are the places that you have been, you know, making investments within the last year or two? And what are the things you see on the horizon? Are there trends like... Yeah, let's get some bold bold predictions. Yeah. yeah. Are you going to acquire Whole Foods? No. Um, <laughs> are there things like, you know, machine learning or deep learning that fundamentally, you know, would change where you can apply Mongo in an interesting way? So one of the big investments we made last year was we acquired a company called Realm. So Realm is a mobile, you know, it's an open source mobile database. So about a quarter of the apps on your phone are using Realm as the core storage engine. So one of the big things that we're working on is changing the way people think about sort of data and synchronization between mobile and web and all these sorts of areas. So for example, a lot of the apps on your phone, you also are using on your desktop or in a browser, or you're sharing data between one phone and a different device or someone, maybe it's a collaborative app. And synchronization is a huge problem, right? I'm editing something on my phone. I've got a to-do list on my phone. It's using an app. The synchronization often works well. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes I've got to like restart the app because the synchronization doesn't quite work. Doing synchronization right between mobile devices and web applications and backends is really hard. So we think that we can just solve that problem, right? We want 
building a mobile application that is collaborative and synchronizes with backends and real time to be as easy as writing a standalone mobile app. Right? We don't want that to be like, oh my God, I've got to build a mobile application and I need this whole team that knows how to do synchronization and manage conflicts. We think that's a whole space that can just we can just make a hundred times easier and just solve it once and for all. I mean, like GitHub for data. Exactly, right. It's a, but no, no, you're not but, doing anything. The computer's doing it all for you. Right, it's, it's much more of a, let me think about, and you know, that all ties into also with sort of privacy and security. The panacea and where we want to go is, I've got data, I've got some sort of, I know roughly what my data looks like, I want to set some rules around that data based on attributes. These documents Elliot owns. He can do whatever he wants with these documents. If he wants to do something bad, fine, that's okay, I don't care. Elliot is saying, you know what, someone else can just, you know, read these documents. Or maybe they can read only these fields from these kinds of documents. Or maybe they can even edit these fields, but only these fields under these conditions. How can you set up some very simple rules on the back end so that your applications can just consume the data? And the nice thing about that is if you just have simple rules, it's not just sort of the basic CRUD applications that work. Then if you can push those rules down into analytics and aggregations, then Elliot can go write queries and understand the data, or developers can go build dashboards in their applications that query the data without having to think about the privacy concerns because someone thought about them already, they set the rules in place, and everything I'm doing is just on top of those on top of those rules. So you've got Realm, which is sort of in its own world, right? And then you've got Mongo. How do those worlds sort of come together? So inherently, they're very similar. So Realm is an, fundamentally an object database for your phone. You take, like if you're on an iPhone, you've got a Swift object, and you can persist the Swift object. So very much similar to a document. So hey, the actual, Realm, save this. I'm going to want it later. Right, All save day. this. Yeah. Or And then if you've got different threads, for example, if you've got one thread in the background updating an object, and you've got a UI component in your app that's based on this object, it will automatically update the UI in response to the data changing. I mean, this is good for people to think about, right? Like, it's not, your phone is doing 5,000 things at once. Exactly. And so this is a database that's cognizant of the fact that your phone is doing 5,000 things at once. Cognizant of, of threading is also cognizant of like power saving mode and sleep. Mm-hmm. How is it supposed to respond when you're low on power? How is it when it, versus when it's in the background versus when it's in the active application? All those sorts of things no developer wants to think. No it's mobile developer little, wants it's to It's very do. sensitive. It's now, <laughs> at the same time, so the data model is fundamentally very similar to, to Mongo, right? Structured, arrays, documents, et cetera, et cetera. And so the key thing, for example, that we're working on is how do we take that data and automatically synchronize that back to the cloud with privacy, with security? And in this case, the cloud means Mongo. Atlas, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Atlas, okay. Yep. And that just, you know, again, makes developers a lot simpler. It makes their lives a lot simpler. They don't have to solve this problem anymore. We should also make developers simpler. I mean, that's the goal here, ultimately. It's just very hard to <laughs> Like achieve. them as people? Oh, my God, yeah. yeah. Wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to, like, keep building software but could just simplify the developers? Well, I mean, there's a <laughs> facetious way to take that. But the, the way that I think about it mm-hmm. is you want to make development more approachable for everyone. You know, some of the early biggest fans of Mongo were people who were new developers, maybe people in places where they couldn't, you know, didn't quite have the resources to have the, you know, the best education or people who just, you know, so the people could just learn it quickly and get started and build applications. And I think that development for so long has been seen as this like holy grail of like, oh my God, if you're a developer, you have to be brilliant to get anything done, which I think is not what's going to be the case for, you know, the foreseeable future, right? It has to be something that's more uh, more approachable, more consumable by most people. So yesterday I had dinner with my with my dad who listens to this podcast. Hi, dad. 
And he said to me, Hi, Mr. I, <laughs> he said to me, I was in the Apple store before and my, my phone went off and I picked up my phone and it was like, how is the Apple store? And it was terrifying. How do we help people understand how do you do you think about this often? You know, when you're thinking about privacy and data, how do we make the average person more comfortable? So I think one thing developers and technologists have not done a good job of, is of explaining things in simple ways. Yeah. I have tried to explain Mongo to my grandparents. And, you know, having tried to do that many <laughs> times, I think I finally have come up with decent analogies that they understand. But I think you technologists have to spend more time thinking about how do I make it simple. I was talking to someone earlier this week about open source and why open source is such a powerful concept. And they were like, I agree with you. But then she said, but the people that I am working with, the people that I'm trying to get to use my solutions, hear the word open source and assume it's scary, assume people are going to like, it's less secure. And it's these things that as a developer, you're like, no, open source tends to be more secure, tends to be safer, is better. But for you know people who just sort of don't know this or people who aren't technologists, open source sounds scary. It's like, oh, but my, wait, this is, this is for data. Does that mean all my data is exposed? Or does that mean people can see the code so they can find bugs faster? And they don't understand how this works. And it requires, frankly, a lot of time and effort and just working through different ways of explaining it. I think if you just keep saying the same thing over and over again, louder and louder, doesn't tend to work. Yeah. You've got to actually come up with better analogies, better ways of explaining why things matter and where you're going. And at the end of the day, actually make simpler paradigms. Right? If you think about Mongo versus relational databases, we think Mongo is a fundamentally simpler way to think. It's not less powerful. We haven't removed power. We've just done it in a way that is easier to understand, easier to, you know, and easier to build on. Right? Going from day zero to day 100 to day 200 is a simpler path. And I think that's sort of important for all technology. I mean, you were saying before that you can really connect with students around this, but often in high school and college, they're still learning relational databases first. That's kind of the fundamental in the curriculum. And as a novice, you know, sort of coder myself, I mean, I think one of the things I think about a lot is if a lot of people are going to have these kinds of jobs, we should treat, you know, computer programming as one of the sort of fundamental pieces of literacy, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic, whatever it is. And, and until that changes, I think it will continue to be kind of you know, somewhat frightening for a lot of people because they'll get to middle school or high school without really having touched any of this stuff. Uh, totally agree. And even the way that public education is approaching this, so in some cases it's very good, in some cases we're still figuring out. For example, there's one, like one plug, there's one um, project called Bootstrap, not the Twitter Bootstrap UI thing, but it, it's a Bootstrap is a middle school math curriculum that has been proven to teach math, maybe proven is a strong word, but it seems to be teaching middle schoolers algebra better than standard math curriculums and teaches them computer science along the way. So cool. They're like so related. Exactly. And yeah. then I think, but like, you know, the, I know some of the people who created it, they, you know, they've been thinking about this problem for 20 years. They finally have sort of cracked some core concepts of how do we teach kids these fundamentals and get them to understand math better? Because, you know, I think most people would say algebra is not something that most middle schoolers enjoy or is, in, is intuitive, <laughs> yeah. but they're, they're doing it in a way that's more intuitive and in teaching them programming at the same time. I would have loved that in school, I feel and like. So, and so I think these things are super important, not just for middle school, but, you know, think about it in high school and college, right? The same way computers are just now starting to become a standard part of curriculum. You know, I look at my daughter, like she uses Google in school, like presentations in Google very easily. And that's like, it's not like a 
computer, like I remember when I was a kid, there was a computer class and that was like the special class where you got to use a computer. And that's not a good way to teach people, you know, kids how to use computers. But if you're like, oh, okay, you have to do a history presentation and you're going to do it on Google. You're going to use Google presentations. Like that makes sense. That's a way to teach them about something with tangible results in a way that actually is useful. And I think a lot of things need to be rethought that way. And you know, what do we really want to teach kids? How do we help people understand what's important and why and how it works? At the end of every episode, we usually do a thing where we shout out the community, a badge called Lifeboat, which is a question that was downvoted, meaning people were like, this is not a good question, and then therefore not going to be answered. And somebody came in, answered the question, and it was upvoted, and you know, became sort of part of the, you know, the stack of knowledge that we have. So this question was asked just seven hours ago by user Jasper with one reputation. So a brand new contributor. Hello, Jasper. He says, how to plot uniform time series in MongoDB charts. Think you can handle this one? A uniform time series in MongoDB charts. It's going to be very hard without a screen in front of you because it's a visual product. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I'll read so, the question to you, and then maybe I can share the screen. You, you have right. time. You have time after this episode is recorded to go in and answer it. All right, and get that lifeboat badge. I've just started to use MongoDB charts to plot incoming data from a series of IoT devices that send at regular intervals. Each device sends a package with a timestamp and some data, JSON to our NoSQL DB, and I would like to plot several devices on the same chart. To visually check the continuity of the data flowing in, i.e. if a device fails to upload, I want to plot each data point over a continuous time series x-axis. Does anyone know if MongoDB charts has a feature to make the x-axis continuous? Currently, the chart plots one point per observation and spaces them equally no matter the time in between. And then he's left an example here, which is hyperlinked. Example of data points one, two, three, all have six minutes in between, but visually appear to be non-uniform. So think about it. If you've got an answer, you can say it now on the pod. If not, maybe you can write it in. What in my dear Lord. And Ben just brought up something where it's like 12 lines and the number is one, two, three, scribbled by hand above. So, <laughs> so, so anyways. This is so, the CTO. If he can't solve it, who yeah. can? I, I've got a couple <laughs> ideas. We, I've got a couple ideas. One is... There's a new, a relatively new feature in charts where you can do a pre-processing phase. Fundamentally, charts creates an aggregation pipeline where you can put a pre-aggregation pipeline that does this cleaning. We've got a couple of functions that will let you actually do a uniform distribution. So you'd have to not do that in charts itself, but do it in, you can create a view in Mongo. Oh, nice. Is it a view of the data that becomes normalized? So you're thinking like to use that feature and figure out if there's any missing timestamps. Exactly, and then yeah. to sort of normalize the time across the range. Cool. So you find the minimum, find the maximum, and then and you could do that in a, a MongoDB view, and then you can chart the view rather than the raw data. And I'm surprised there's not a charts feature for this. There's probably on the backlog. That one I'll have to look look into. I don't know. If the top, I can't remember off the top Actually, of my if head. If this question uh, results in a new feature, I'll be super happy. <laughs> <laughs> this is the biggest, yeah, it's everyone's biggest nightmare is someone in very high leadership coming back and being like, you know, I just got an idea today. It's like, that sounds like a podcast. We're changing the whole roadmap. <laughs> that sounds like my team's worst nightmare. That happens every day. <laughs> How many? Like, I heard this. How many Mongo questions are there? Oh, there's a lot. Uh, MongoDB. So if I go to tags, there's basically 125,000 questions with the MongoDB oh, tag. So 62 cool. asked just today, 433 this week. And then there's a bunch of sort of other ones. MongoDB query, MongoDB.net driver, MongoDB Java. So then there's a, a whole family. I mean, those are all much smaller. I mean, that kind of makes the point, right? This is a whole world. Once you've started with Mongo, you're going to keep going in all kinds of different directions. 
All right. I mean, it's it's. Uh, does that Elliot? We just held that... the question live on the air. That was pretty cool. Well, That's, we're not live. Well, we're on the air. We didn't validate it yet. You know, let's let's be real engineers <laughs> here. When you hear hundreds of thousands of questions, is that a good thing? I think it's a good thing. I mean, in a perfect world. Everything would be so intuitive that everyone understands everything and never has to ask a question. I mean, that's never happened that's in the never history. Happen. That's never going to happen. I mean, as, as, and it will never happen in the history of programming. So, you know, one of my, you know, for the first five, six years of Mongo's existence, I made it my mission to answer every question about Mongo anywhere on the internet as fast as humanly possible. Cool. So we had a mailing list. I think I'm still the number one contributor on the mailing list. And it's not because it was like, I want to be number one. It was like, no, like, this was my life. I literally was close to 24-7, if someone asked a question, whether it was on Google Groups, in Jira, on the MongoDB public IRC channel that I monitored nearly 24-7, how can I help them as fast as possible? My life was maybe not the most fun for a few years there, but it was great. I mean, literally, it was just like people just asking questions, helping them, adding features. You know, this is when we were moving fast. We could just add features, add things all the time. I remember adding a feature for, you know, a big user I was in uh, Silicon Valley talking to some people, and there's I had an evening free, and I sat at a hotel bar drinking a glass of wine and added some cool Mongo features for the next six hours and just hacked away, and you know, and they put them into production two weeks later, and they worked, and it made their app better. And being able to sort of listen to users, add features fast, put them in users' hands, and see them sort of make progress because of those, it's sort of hard to beat that feeling. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's it sounds like it was critical to your growth, right? I mean, just like yeah, I mean that that this bizarre angel floating around answering every question. I, I, I wouldn't put it that way, but I think the key is the concept of Mongo was very sort of exciting for people. The reality is that at that point we had put three person years of effort into the database. Mm-hmm. The amount of person years that has gone into any other database that people use, Oracle, MySQL, Postgres. I'm not even sure what you know how many digits there are there, but many, many orders of magnitude more. And we were tiny. Mm-hmm. And so the ability, you know, so we can move the needle fast. When we added distributed transactions to Mongo, we think it, you know, was about a roughly hundred person year, maybe was distributed even more, yeah, you know, hundred to two hundred person year effort. Like we couldn't even fathom adding features like that originally, because like we had, you know, four people sure. in the entire company. And so pros and cons. Well and you were gonna do what you could do. Yeah, we wanted to make users successful, you know, because the first Mongo users, the very first people who used Mongo were friends of ours. And so, like, it was very easy for me because, like, you're my friend, similar personalities. I'm going to make you as successful as possible. You've got a problem, I'm going to fix it. If you have, I remember one of them had a big release that was going out in the middle of the night. And I was like, I will be up with you and we're going to sit next to each other and we're going to do this release together. I will be watching the Mongo side. You're going to be watching your side and we're going to do it together. And that was sort of what you know carried us through those first few years is sort of acting like that with every person using Mongo. We really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story and all that knowledge with us. Thanks, and I really appreciate you having me. It's been all great. All right. So I'm Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. You can find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. I'm Sarah J. Chips on Twitter. I'm the Director of Public Q&A here in Stack Overflow. If you have some extra laptops laying around, send them to Code Cooperative. They're looking for some. And I'm Paul Ford. I am the co-founder and CEO of a software company called Postlight. Boy, if you're an engineer or a product manager or designer looking for work, you should get in touch at FTrain on Twitter. And I am Elliot Horowitz, CTO and co-founder of MongoDB. Send me tweets at Elliot Horowitz on Twitter and uh, ask Mongo questions, Mongo feedback. Always happy to chat. 
Terrific. We're all done. That's a wrap. Awesome.